0: Welcome to another episode of The Cubic Report. This is episode number 51. My guest today is Dr. Lilia Wagner. We're very grateful that she's been able to come here and do this podcast with me. She is a remarkable lady who, along with her husband, John, have touched the lives of many people around the world, including ours. And so I'd ask you to please allow me a little bit longer than usual introduction. But before that, I want to say welcome to our podcast, Lilia.
1: Thank you. Pleasure to be with you.
0: Lilia is a consultant and trainer who has traveled over much of the world in her work. Actually, she's traveled to 101 countries, uh, mostly for work. She was the associate director at Indiana University, IUPUI, Lilly Family School of Philanthropy, in Indianapolis, where I met her through Dr. Les Lenkowski, whom I had met on a visit to Russia in 1999 with, on a trip with Indiana First Lady Judy O'Bannon. He introduced us, and we had lunch, and I told Lily about my dream about life nets. This was before it started, actually just a few months before we became a 501c3, and asked her about advice. But I found that we had quite a bit in common First of all, we both were refugees from Eastern Europe, or she was from the Baltics, she was Estonian. My parents were refugees from Ukraine that lived in Germany after World War II before coming to the United States. Also the fact that her father was named was Victor, as well as mine. Her father was a Seventh-day Observer, Seventh-day Adventist. In fact, he was the head of the Adventist Church in Estonia. Seemed like there was just more than just talking to a consultant. Also, I took the step of asking her to be on the early board of LifeNets, which she graciously agreed to do. And so Lily has been a significant influence and mentor in the start of LifeNets. She has, in her consulting work and in her personal work, has written quite a few books. One of them was award-winning. She wrote about women war correspondents in World War II. One about caring is not a spectator sport. And, uh, some of these books are very, very valuable. And one that I had not really even known about is the book that led to this podcast. The name of the book is to linger is to die. And it's a story about her and her family's escape or leaving Estonia in the midst of world war two. This is what we want to talk about today because it is quite a story. She has told this story on several forums. She's talked about it in churches. She's talked about it in other forums. And I actually saw a presentation of it just very recently here, her giving it in Penang, Malaysia. But anyway, this book became part of a reading series for Adventist schools. And as a result, she's spoken a great deal about this book. So while we can talk about Lilia professionally, I do want to talk about her early life and To linger is to die in the power of one.
1: Well, I'm happy to share some of that information with you, especially as we have a lot of attention on refugees these days, both here coming to the U.S., but also because of the unfortunate war in Ukraine. So I'm more than happy to share some of this story with you. Uh, some of the highlights, as you wish. And thank you very much for calling attention to that.
0: Well, I know that uh, as I saw this book, I read chapter one, and I said, hey, Bev, my wife, I said, this is an amazing book, uh, not because of Lily alone, but because of what's happening with refugees right now, and also the way it affected my life. So I started reading the book aloud to her. (laughs) I couldn't stop. It's about 127 pages or so. And I said, Bev, this is an amazing story. And there are parts of it where we just cried, you know, about what what they had gone through and about the grace of God in protecting them. And and she'll get to the point, and she'll get to uh, the title of this podcast, The Power of One. So uh, this was one of your first books that you had written, wasn't it?
1: Yes, it was actually the first book. I was just in my 20s, and uh, I had concentrated up to that time on trying to be a good American, trying to fit in. When uh, we came and settled permanently in America, I was 13. We had gotten to the United States after a long refugee experience through much of Germany. And uh, we had then finally come to the United States when I was about nine years old. Then after about a year and a half, my father was sent to Bolivia to head up a school there. So when I came back to the U.S. at 13, I was just trying very hard to be American, to fit in. We had come to America with absolutely nothing. And that's one of the reasons that I wrote the book, Caring is Not a Spectator Sport, because we were outfitted by kind people, church organizations, neighbors, where the church had given us a little furnished apartment, So I very early on appreciated how people could show kindness to strangers. The Good Samaritan story of the Bible, of course, which is known around the world, is one of the examples of how the kindness to strangers pays off so well. And I'm actually, shall we say, a recipient of that. So when we came to America, and I was 13, trying to fit in, went to college at 17, and then launched my career after I got married. So I didn't give much thought to my background. After all, Estonia, Latvia, my mother was Latvian, and those countries were all part of the Soviet Union. We had had to escape because the KGB, the Soviet secret police, had uh, pegged my father to be killed. A lot of leaders were. My father, as you already noted, was a church leader. So he was actually told, if you don't cooperate with us and become a spy for us, we'll kill you. Mm -hmm. It was that. And so when I was in my, I think, mid-20s, when a friend who was a book editor actually said, you have an interesting story. You should write it. I had never thought about that. I was so intent on becoming and being an American. And now, of course, we recognize that that has many meanings. But back then, it was trying to fit in, trying to fit in in every way in society, in church, in school. So I began to examine my own story, because I was just a tiny kid when we had to flee. And then I began to realize just what it means to be a refugee, because for me, it was just part of who I was when I thought about my parents who left absolutely everything except my brother and me, and uh, that meant all their belongings, their careers, their relatives, everything. And I began to appreciate what it meant that my parents had sacrificed everything so that we could come to a country where we could develop. Uh, In 1992, when the Soviet Union broke up, I went back to study and found my big plan. And it was once again a matter of realizing just how many advantages I'd had because of the courage of my parents to leave. When I saw how some of the lives of people my age had gone through the Soviet period, I truly was grateful, grateful to many people. My dad's church sponsored us, or I don't know where we would have ended up. A lot of Estonians were sent to Toronto or to Sydney, Australia. We ended up here because of my father's church. Then I thought about all the organizations along the way that gave us food. I remember distinctly being hungry. We were often homeless and roaming through woods because we had to stay ahead of the Soviet armies that were advancing in Germany. So in order to write this book, I had to do quite a bit of research about the war, about the geography, and of course, my dear father helped a great deal, but for me, it was a journey of discovery and a journey of gratefulness, very frankly, and gratefulness to a lot of people who were kind and a lot of people who helped us along the way. I grew up mostly among Hispanics and have been very fond of being part of those populations. Uh, Just as a quick aside to show you how varied my growing up was, by the time I was 10 years old, I had learned four languages. Mm -hmm. Life was quite topsy-turvy for quite a long time, and writing this book, but more importantly than writing the book, discovering my own story was very meaningful for realizing who I was, what people had done for me, and what I, in turn, they wanted to do for
0: others. This is truly Uh, amazing, even talking to you right now because of the feelings that well up with me, even about our family, because we came from from Germany. Of course, I was just two years old. I can't remember uh, coming. But my father and mother settled in southern Minnesota, and they had a sponsor who was their savior. He was a professor at the University of Minnesota who was a, a friend. We were very fortunate after living four years in a DP camp, displaced persons camp, in uh, Hanover, Germany, where I was born, we came to the U.S., and immediately, even when they stepped off the boat at Ellis Island, I mean, there were people already greeting them, uh, churches, you know, providing donuts and coffee. That's the first thing they remember. And then they were, you know, sent to other places in the country, you know, helped by so many people. And even when they were in the DP camp, they still remember all the literally care packages that were sent to them. And sometimes there would be a note inside that. They remember one distinct one said, these are we are people from Omaha, Nebraska, and we wish you well. And so they would just read these notes and cry because they were so grateful that there were people who cared on the other side of the world. So as you tell your story about a refugee, it makes me feel very, very grateful for, first of all, to God for protecting us And also for my parents, for the way they took care of us.
1: It's interesting that you bring up the camps and the the German experience, because when we fled Estonia, it was actually in a German troop ship. They were pulling out of that part because the Soviets had won that area. And uh, we were one of the few ships that was not torpedoed. Many people lost their lives trying to escape off the islands of Estonia to the German troop ships. In Germany, the reason that we were able to stay out of the displaced persons camps or other types of camps for homeless people, basically, was because the church kept employing my father. Mm -hmm. And whenever the Soviets would advance and there were bombings, then they would put my father in the next place, which was a little safer. But I'm also interested that you mentioned the care package. We also got those and my first memory of something sweet was a gumdrop from one of the care packages from the United States. So my experience with generosity of others goes that far back. You also mentioned coming at the age of three. I was three when we left Estonia, so I didn't have exact memories, I had sensations. I remember when we were fleeing toward the coast to catch one of the ships because the Soviets were taking over the country and people were actually committing suicide before they would allow themselves to be captured by the Soviets. That's how brutal it was. And I remember we were in a flat car and I looked up at the sky. It was real clear and I've always loved nature. And I, my mother tells me that I looked up and I said, look, mother, the stars are going with us. So I had sensations. I can't say that I had memories, but I had sensations.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Of course, during the time that we were refugees, uh, some memories began to emerge, especially toward the end of our refugee experience, which uh, probably you, you might want to hear. Yes. But it's interesting. Some things you never forget or get over when I've uh, been able to have some people. I know that others say, get over it. No, you don't get over it. You learn how to handle it. You learn how to deal with it. But that's part of who you are, part of life. And that's, of course, part of our experience, part of who we are.
0: I, I know that you mentioned that in your notes about that's one thing not to tell people to get over it. I know that if people and when people have told me about any type of trauma that I may have experienced, I just get over it. I know that it actually drives it deeper. <laughs> you know, it's not something that's comforting. And it's very important to, to be able to manage it through various ways, through, you know, f- forgiveness, uh, looking at other people's experiences, and know that when things are dark, the only place to go is up, you know, in light. So that, that, that was very, very good in the trauma that people experience. And right now... In Ukraine, there are so, so many people that are being traumatized, even as we speak right now. Just horrible trauma that that they're going through and not knowing if they will be living the next week or not. The same experience that you had, the same experience that my parents had.
1: When I went back the first time to Estonia in 1992, I waited a year before, I waited a year after uh, Estonia became free from the Soviet Union. And uh, I'm already mentioned, I found my clan, especially my uncle, my father's younger brother. He and I were like two peas in a pod, both of us musicians. But what was interesting was how many flashbacks I would have that I didn't even realize my mind had retained. And one night when we were in the hotel, my husband went with me that time because I was scared to go back. And uh, one night in the hotel, late at night, there was a knock on the door. And uh, before I even woke up, I had this whole series of dreams, dreams from my own background, dreams of stories I'd heard from my relatives now that I knew them, dreams of history. And I woke up shaking. Well, actually, it turned out funny because it was a drunk who couldn't find his own room. (laughs) It uh, showed me, again, how much lurks in our backgrounds that we deal with as responsible adults, but we can never discount.
0: Absolutely. One thing that's very interesting about Estonia itself, in fact, one of the things that really um, intrigues me about you, Lilia, is just the fact that uh, you are Estonian. The reason I say this is because I have traveled to the USSR through Leningrad uh, a number of times. And we would go through Finland, Helsinki, Finland. And I remember seeing maps of uh, the Baltics, (laughs) you know, from Finland. And they were so so bare. I mean, they didn't show very much. Because first of all, Estonia was a forbidden place, especially the city of Tartu, which was a bare bomber base and was totally restricted from, from travel. And so it was a place that was close, but yet, you know, far away. and never really paid much attention to Estonia. But then in my pastoral career, uh, I became involved with Estonia very, very directly because we had some uh, believers. In fact, we even started a church. Uh, we, we still have uh, believers. We still have people who uh, are part of our faith uh, in Estonia. And so my wife and I have traveled there many times. And when you talked about Estonia and the places in the book that you mention the city of Tallinn, going down the coast, crossing the island of Sarama, which I have visited you know, uh, several times with our church's Feast of Tabernacles that we have uh, observed there for year after year. It just brought back so many feelings and, and just knowing you. You mentioned in your uh, speech in Penang how you looked upon its, its location geographically. It's surrounded by water. It's a beautiful place. There are big powers all around. You know, it used to be Sweden, Finland at one time that dominated it. And then it was the Germans, you know, from the south. And then, of course, of course the Russians. And it's prime land. You know, it's right there on the Baltic Sea. And the Russians have, don't have access to the Baltic Sea. And it's a huge country. And the Estonians are just blessed with the ports, a beautiful area. And it's just really quite a story about Estonia's survival. And so right now, we're actually praying for this war in Ukraine to come to a good ending. It's horrible because of all the people who have died. But also for the sake of the Baltic republics, you know, for their safety, even though they're under the umbrella of NATO, we are praying for their safety and their independence. Because I have been traveling to Estonia, and one reason I did is because of speaking the Russian language. Under Soviet times, I was able to get around Estonia, get around the cities very well because there were so many Russian-speaking people. That has, of course, significantly changed. But anyway, I found that to be very, very interesting about you being Estonian and my working in Estonia.
1: Well, there's an interesting aspect of Estonia. You mentioned all the occupations that we had, and we really weren't free until uh, this Bolshevik revolution around 1918. And that, of course, lasted only until World War II. So if you think architecturally, there's so many interesting influences. And if your listeners wanted to get on the web or even there's quite a few clips about Estonia on YouTube now, which I find very interesting since most of my life I actually had to explain there was a country like Estonia that I wasn't making a bad joke. (laughs) The thing is that the Estonian language is supposed to be one of the 10 most difficult languages in the world. Now, since it was my first language, of course, um, I never found it difficult. Although I did have to revive it when I went back the first time since, uh, I mean, after all, how many Estonians do people know? We are a small country. I do want to take time, if I may, to... uh, Tell you the last incident of our escape.
0: Please do. It
1: shows what you mentioned, illustrates the power of one. And it has always been with me as I've tried to encourage people to help each other and as I through my work and otherwise also have tried to help. We had finally ended up in northwestern Germany in the British and Canadian zone. You might remember. That well, you know that the uh, Germany was divided into four. Right. So we were trying to stay out of the Soviet era, area because if we had been caught there, it would have been an instant death sentence or being sent to Siberia to uh, be killed there. So we were very grateful to be in the northwestern part. We were living with a farmer and his family. And my father was given seven churches to pastor. How he did that, I'm really not sure. But it was, as I recall, beautiful area. In my adult professional years, I have worked there a number of times. And I appreciate the area, but also the memories that I get from that time. Because it seemed like for the first time, we were safe. We were free. We were safe. I even remember as a little kid being sent to bring the cows home. Now, what they were thinking in letting me do that, I don't know. But I always loved animals, so I remember enjoying it. So one morning, my father got up early, as he usually did, and was going to walk into town for something. I don't know what. And he thought, boy, it's eerily quiet. It's really not. It's Something's wrong. And then he noticed all the posters and the trees and the fences and the house walls. And it said, this area now belongs to Soviet Russia. Anyone caught leaving their home will be shot on sight. Well, that was a double danger for us because the Soviets considered us as deserters or escapees. And the word refugee didn't really come into being at all in that context.
0: Mm -hmm.
1: Of course, he hurried home immediately. The farmer and his family and the four of us got together And it was basically, and even as a kid, I remember the desperation and the anxiety in the room. So what are we going to do? And so the farmer said, okay, I know a little road through the woods. I'm going to take you there so you can escape over the border. Well, of course, my parents said, you can't do that. Remember the poster said anyone caught leaving their house will be shot on sight." Well, he insisted. So he went and hitched up the cow The horses had all been confiscated for the war effort, and I felt sorry for the little cow, but she pulled six of us, my family and the farmer and his son, who Mm. sat in the front. So we started out, and even as a kid, I remember how eerily quiet everything was in that beautiful countryside. And suddenly the farmer says, get down quick, there are soldiers up ahead. And of course, we didn't know who the soldiers were. Were they part of the Allies, or were they Soviet soldiers, or who were they? So to our immense relief, they were British soldiers. And so my dad, who knew just a little bit of English, jumped out of the cart and talked to them and explained to them our dilemma, my family's dilemma, that if we were caught by the advancing armies, it would be a certain death. Well, bless their hearts, they looked at each other, whispered and said to us, if you promise not to tell anyone that you've seen us, we'll let you go. Well, that was the world's easiest promise to keep because we were hoping not to see anyone. (laughs) But they got to the border and, you know, like good ideas frequently have companions. Well, a lot of people had thought of the same thing. Nobody was going anywhere. I still remember the barbed wire fence the soldiers. Fortunately, they were British soldiers. And they uh, were so many feet, every so many feet, there was a British soldier. So the farmer said goodbye. Years later, we found out he got home OK, much to our relief. And my dad, again, with his limited English, went to explain our dilemma. And the soldier, of course, said, hey, I can't do anything. But if you leave your family here, I'll let you run a couple of miles and get if you get permission from headquarters, I can let you through. I can understand his position. He was following orders. But it's also funny because it was the one time in my life when I was an in insurance policy <laughs> that if we stayed there, my dad would come back. Mm-hmm. So he ran and... Uh, Miracle occurred. He found the right officer. The officer listened, took a little piece of paper, didn't say much, and wrote something and handed it back to my dad. My dad thanked him and raced back to the border. Well, if you can imagine my mother sitting there with two small children. What was going to happen? What would happen to him, to us, etc.? cetera? Well, my dad came. He found the soldier again that he had talked to, gave him a little piece of paper. And to our amazement, they motioned for us to come. So we quickly picked up the very few things that we had and headed toward the barbed wire fence and to that soldier. And he opened a makeshift gate and we got through. Well, you can imagine the murmuring in the crowd. Why can't they go? Why can't we go? I stood in line in airports endlessly. And when somebody cuts line, I sure don't like it. And I'm sure that's how the people must have felt. Well, we got to the other side and it was also very quiet and very scary. And at some point about 15 minutes after we were walking on the other side, again, back in the British zone, we heard the rumble of huge trucks. We had escaped capture by 15 minutes. And it truly was a miracle. Now, what is even more interesting is what the note said. This British soldier who had listened to my dad, who had believed my dad, and he cared, he had written to the sergeant. And he said, if you can do so without arousing too much curiosity from the others, you can let this man and his family through. Unbelievable, but it was truly a miracle. And it to me for the rest of my life illustrated the point of what one person can do. And we like to think that we live through the promise that we also, my brother was a missionary in Africa for 22 years and worked in education. My dad established this school that now is a university in Bolivia worked with uh, congregations, the Puerto Rican congregations in the bad part of Brooklyn, New York. And I've worked all over it. And we like to think that maybe we repaid the power of this one person, the kindness of this one person who really made it possible for me to be here and talk to
0: you. That is an amazing story. I've I've read that in the book, in fact, read it twice. I heard you speak about it and I heard you say it again right now. It is truly amazing how gracious God was to you. It seems like he had something else in store for you, and you have more than rep- repaid that through your work in the philanthropic world as, as a leader yeah. in mentoring. It's been just really an amazing story. Thank you. I know that I feel very, very grateful, too, for my parents of course, this podcast is really focused on you, and I've told that story too. But they also went through a border of having to escape through a border as individuals uh, by being let through by a Russian guard who allowed them. But that's a story for another time, and I've written about it. But it's amazing because you've come to this country, and you've talked about the power of one.
1: And it's also, as I've done refugee work, for example, a group of college students and I went, in the early eighties to Thailand to help some of the refugees coming from Cambodia and Laos. And I've always been heartened by how people, yes, there's a lot of cruelty, meanness and everything in the world, but also the kindness that you can see that people express to each other. Uh, People in Thailand who who were good to the people in the camps coming from Cambodia, especially where there was a horrible Holocaust of its own. So it's been a privilege to be able to work in ways that I could actually use my experience and my knowledge and give back.
0: I know that one thing that drives us or motivates us or allows our heart to be open to things is not just administrative skills, but really a heart and compassion for these people that either have it or you don't in a way. And that's why I appreciate the book that you wrote and gave me almost 20 years ago, caring is not a spectator sport because, you know, you talked about how in your work, you've seen people of various kinds and sorts, you know, uh, some could do more, uh, and should do more. And that caring is something that you just don't look and just write grants for, but that you actually put yourself forward in those things.
1: And by the way, if any of your listeners are interested in that kind of a book, it's gotten to be, it went through two printings, but of course that's been a little while and it's kind of expensive through Amazon, but a kind individual at the UPS store here actually scanned it for me and I can send a free scanned copy to someone who might be interested.
0: Are you talking about To Linger Is To Die?
1: Yes, to linger to die.
0: That is a book that I was hoping that <laughs> you would make available. I know that it's kind of out of print. And uh, before you sent me your scanned copy and you sent me a, in a personally signed copy, I had uh, found a copy of it through who knows what bookstore someplace uh, far away. We will make that available in the notes that accompany this podcast. Also, in the notes that accompany this podcast, we will have a PowerPoint that shows some of the slides that Lilia uses when she gives this presentation, uh, slides of Estonian countryside.
1: It certainly is a beautiful countryside, but it also is very interesting, especially the capital city, Tallinn, where you have architectural influences, going back to the Middle Ages, all the way to the Soviet period. Uh, I won't comment on the latter, but the former the different eras and the different nationalities that owned Estonia or were occupying Estonia. All those are very, very interesting. For example, the German barons, the wealthy Germans owned our land and us, uh, we were basically their slaves Uh, and they were in Estonia for a long time, but they also left the heritage of beautiful mansions, some of which have been repurposed, some of which the ruins are maintained, some of which have actually been restored, like into schools or something. And so they're very interesting architectural influences that dictate what the eras, what the people were like. I found out that uh, my ancestors were actually the tavern keepers on the land of the German baron. They, of course, they were owned by the German baron, but uh, when they didn't have names back then, as happened in many countries, and they were given names when finally the Estonians were starting to have identities of their own and not just part of the German barons or the Russian occupiers, and my family was given the name Vinglas, which literally translated as wine glass. (laughs)
0: So
1: kind of funny because my dad was a teetotaler. I've been on that property, a beautiful area. The mansion is gone, but some of the outbuildings and the landscaping, of course, is still there. So I found out that I have some German blood in me, too, that I didn't know because of my grandfather was the illegitimate child of the German baron. Uh-huh. It's kind of because these stories are repeated in the country after country when their occupiers are those who make others subservient to them. So it was kind of an interesting piece that I didn't know about my background.
0: Well, I know I I learn more and more about you you know all the time. I know that they have some beautiful estates outside of Tallinn that are even places where are like bed and breakfast places and and that sort of thing uh, that uh, they go back long long time.
1: There's one more interesting tale that. Uh, I also illustrates some of the capriciousness of wartime. Uh, when the Soviets were coming in, they uh, tried to deport as many of the able-bodied men as they could. My father managed to escape that, but they got my uncle, who was a musician, and I actually have a violin he made. And uh, he was part of the group that they rounded up and put in cattle cars and shipped them to Siberia. But on the way, of course, they realized in order to get the work out of these guys, they had to feed them at least a little. So they got took them off at one of the abandoned German manor houses, fed them some awful soup. And my uncle noticed that when the spoons clinked on the soup, that they made a note. Both well, he and I had perfect pitch, one of the first things that we discovered about each other. And so when they were done eating that awful soup, he organized music is in Estonian vein, music and chocolate. <laughs> but they organized, He organized the guys into uh, notes. And so they were playing these the chorales or folk songs and having as good a time as under the circumstances they could playing on their soup bowls. And uh, of course, this was fine China because it was a German barons. Uh And so when the Soviets, of course, came back in the room, made them get on the uh, train again. And uh, most of those guys died. But ever after that, when the family would try to trace where my uncle had been taken, people would say, oh, you mean the man who played the soup bowls (laughs) because of his music? They didn't make him go work in the mines and the forests where most of them died. They kept him in the kitchen so that he could play at their fancy dinners. So that was how he was saved and how he got back to Estonia eventually.
0: Oh, the many, many stories. It's really really quite a story. Anything else that you would like to say? Any advice or any word to, to everyone?
1: The idea of... Being generous, of course, that word slips in because of my profession, but also kind to refugees. These are usually people, these are usually good people. You mentioned the Ukrainian refugees, one of my best friends from Ukraine. I've worked there a number of times and I have good friends. She escaped with her family to Turkey. She had to leave absolutely everything And uh, of course, it breaks my heart, too, to think of all the pets that are left behind and what happens to them, never mind the goods, the material goods. And when I think about refugees, usually they are good people. They want to keep on with life. They want to have a life. Mm -hmm. And if there's anything at all that any of us can do to help refugees, I'm very, very proud of the community we live in right now because it's a very varied community, very diverse, just outside of Washington. But there is also a group that has taken in Afghan refugees helped them with their material goods, helped train them to find jobs, to help them learn better English. And so these are human beings, and it, there but for the grace of God go any of us.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Think about all the people who died, who were killed, who were tortured, and we, can, we escape that. And I think it is part of my duty to humanity to help as I have been helped. And this is what I would hope that your listeners will take the refugee as a person, as a person who deserves caring. Sure, there are a few shysters among them, people who maybe are political refugees or whatever, but for the most part, People simply want to have a life and have a productive and safe life. And if there's anything at all that we can do to help them, uh, I've kept track of a few of the refugees that I and my students helped in the refugee camps of Thailand and those little tiny efforts have really paid off. In fact, one of those students became head of the refugee programs for a large organization and she was the one that I was afraid would maybe not make it because she was young. She was a freshman. She was from a farm in Nebraska. And she has really shown how if a person catches a vision of trying to care, caring is not a spectator sport. I think a huge difference can be made. Just like when you throw a pebble into the pool, all the ripples that go out. Mm-hmm. So that's uh, my Mission is to understand and therefore help refugees, no matter who they are or where they're from.
0: Well, Lily, I think that this fact is the one that probably brings us together because of uh, our our working with people who are vulnerable and disadvantaged and, you know, in in every way, sometimes demeaned and, and forgotten. One thing about the United States, there's no place that's more generous than the United States. Really woe to the world if something happens to the U.S., because it is the one place that really does give a lot of help, even to enemy countries. Whenever there's a disaster, whenever there's some earthquake or whatever, to countries that we even don't politically mesh with, there we are in government programs. The U.S. is very generous in that way. And you have been such a leader, uh, really, in, in the world in uh, bringing awareness to that. And we are so very grateful to you for that, Lilia.
1: It's a real privilege. And it really is more blessed to give than to receive, as the Bible says.
0: Absolutely. And I always want to make one more comment about Lilia's husband, John, because he also has been a very, very good friend and very big part of LifeNets. Both of them have been on our board of directors, which to me was astounding to a startup where I've not done a nonprofit before And now we've been operating for 23, 24 years and have become quite successful in the things that we do. But a lot of credit goes to both of them for the mentorship, for learning the hacks, for learning all the things that go into making of a a nonprofit and making it successful. Her husband, I might mention, is or has been one of the pastors of the largest Seventh-day Adventist church in the United States, uh, just in the Washington, D.C. area. And uh, I have maintained contact with him for years. And in my work as uh, president of the United Church of God, I would call him about administrative questions about how you do this and how, how they handle things. And I have found both John and Lilia to be just very, very open, very, very wonderful as far as sharing knowledge. So we thank you both very, very much.
1: Well, thank you. It certainly has been a privilege and a pleasure
0: Lilia, thank you so much for joining us. You've been just absolutely wonderful today.
1: Well, thank you. I've really enjoyed it, as I always enjoy when we work together. Thank you. Wish you the best.
0: Okay, thank you. We thank you, our listeners, for joining us here today for The Cubic Report. If you have enjoyed this podcast, please share it and tell your friends about it. We can be found on a variety of platforms, including Podbean, which includes information about this podcast. Apple and Google Podcasts, Spotify, iHeartRadio, Amazon Music, Audible, Pocketcaster, and other podcasting platforms. You can easily find us on any browser address bar by simply typing in the words the cubic report. And there we are. We'd love to hear from you. We'd love to hear your impressions and suggestions. So write to us at thecubic at gmail.com, V-K-U-B-I-K at gmail.com. Again, thank you for listening. Come back soon for more.